The scripture reading today is found in Matthew 12, 40 through 43 for, to 50. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my brother, mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Church, are we hanging in there without the heat? The heat is unfortunately not working at the moment. Of all the weeks that Tim and Galen are out of town, he picks the day that the heat is off. And, <laughs> and if I get cold, I run back there, grab my coat, you'll know why. But Tim and Galen are actually in Charleston, South Carolina this week. Uh, Tim was preaching at our sister church, coincidentally called Risen Hope Church as well. When they were starting up, they actually asked us permission. They loved the name of our church. They asked for permission to use our name. And we we're like, yeah. Uh, and then yesterday, on Saturday, Tim was preaching at the One Charleston Conference where over a dozen churches gathered. Uh, these are a dozen churches that are committed to racial reconciliation in the body of Christ. And they gathered for, for worship, for prayer, for teaching. And Tim had a chance to minister the word there. Um, and then if you guys have noticed, uh, Doug Nottage is actually here. He's shooting video because the next Sovereign Grace Church's mission video will actually be featuring Risen Hope Church. Uh, and we're excited. Our prayer as pastors is that the Lord would use this video uh, to really uh, glorify himself in terms of, you know, what the gospel does in terms of, you know, racial diversity and that we would, and uh, this, the Lord would use this video to encourage other churches within our family, within our denomination, to, to a radical pursuit of diversity. Uh, let me just pray for, for Tim and then for our time as, as we look at God's Word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your Word. Thank you for our brother, Pastor Tim, as he ministers this weekend. I pray that you would bear much fruit, that the church would be stronger, more unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ through the preaching of your Word. And I pray for us this afternoon as the word is open, God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, that you would make us a more faithful church through the preached word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, several years ago, hundreds of Christians were gathered in the country of Nigeria to hear a very famous preacher who was visiting. And many of these visitors, travelers, 
were staying at a guest house owned by the church. And the building, the guest house, looked like any other residential complex. It had multiple floors and rooms. Extra stories were added to this building to accommodate more people. The travelers arrived, they unpacked their bags, they settled into their rooms, but little did they know that the building they were staying in was straining under the weight of so many extra people. And then the unimaginable happened. The unimaginable, the guest house collapsed under the weight of all those extra people, tragically taking many lives. And this tragedy was completely avoidable. This guest house was built the easy way. Shortcuts were taken with labor and building materials. It wasn't built the right way. This guest house was short-lived. It wasn't built to last. And this guest house, it looked good on the outside. None of those visitors would have thought that this building was going to collapse. It looked good on the outside, but it was poorly built on the inside. And this collapsed guest house is tragically a picture of so many people, so many people whose spiritual life looks good on the outside, but is poorly built on the inside. We're going to see from today's passage that you can't follow Jesus without taking on a new nature, a new master, a new direction, and a new family. Let me repeat that. You can't follow Jesus without taking on a new nature, a new master, a new direction, and a new family. Uh, if you are a guest, if you are a visitor with us, uh, we're in, currently in the middle of a sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen King Jesus teach with kingdom authority in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And following that, Jesus has acted with kingdom authority through his miracles, through his power over demons and sickness and disease and death. But that ministry, his teaching, and his kingdom works have brought him into conflict with the religious authorities. Last week, Leo preached about how Jesus, he cast out a, a demon who had possessed a man who was both blind and mute, and the religious leaders, instead of acknowledging that Jesus was doing this by the power of God, they denounced Jesus. They said he was committing blasphemy, that Jesus was casting out a demon by the power of Satan, casting out demons by the power of demons. They were basically saying that Jesus wasn't on God's side, he's actually on Satan's side. And these leaders have completely and willfully rejected Christ, rejected the Holy Spirit, and so they have completely cut themselves off from any hope of forgiveness and any hope of eternal life. And at the end of this section, as we bring chapter 12 to a close, we see that Jesus turns the accusation of blasphemy that was hurled at him from the religious leaders, he turns that accusation back towards the religious leaders and illustrates the reverse. That's actually the religious leaders, those who claim to know God, who are actually in league with evil and Satan. So let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 44. Just keep your Bibles open. We'll be diving into God's Word. Let's look at verses 43 through 44. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my... Excuse me. My notes are all stuck together. Must be the uh, lack of heat. Okay. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes... 
it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Jesus is telling this parable to illustrate the spiritual condition of his audience, especially the religious leaders. We see an unclean spirit, an evil spirit has left a person. We don't know how. Maybe it was cast out. Maybe it left on its own. But in either case, this unclean spirit is, you know, once had a home, but now it's homeless. And this homeless demon is wandering around the wilderness trying to find rest, but it can't find any, so it returns back to its original home. And it finds this house empty, swept, and put in order. This Greek word for put in order means adorned or tidied up or fixed up. So this house is now fixed up. Things have been cleaned up. And we can infer that previously this house was dirty and chaotic. But there's more than meets the eye. This house looks good on the outside. There seems like some kind of moral reformation, some behavior, some things have been changed and fixed up. And in a historical sense, it's true for the nation of Israel. Changes have taken place. In biblical history, we know that Israel has undergone judgment and exile for their idolatry and their sin. But things are now different. The temple has been rebuilt. Worship is restored. The law of God is being taught. And at this point in time, in the first century, John the Baptist has appeared on the scene preaching a message of repentance. And many people have responded and gotten baptized. But just like the guest house, this nation looks good on the outside. And that's so true for so many people today. Things may look good on the outside. Just think about the self-help industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that sells tools and techniques to improve yourself. There are programs to help you get out of addiction, programs to make you a better person, a better leader, a better spouse. Now, I'm not against bestsellers like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There's a lot we can learn from resources like that. But self-help can't save you from sin. Self-help can't rescue you from the dominion of darkness. And millions of people are being deceived because simply thinking that they have improved themselves, that they are now good enough to go to heaven. Why would I need Jesus to help me if I can help myself, if I can fix myself, if I can improve myself? But changing your behavior and improving yourself on the outside still leaves you the same on the inside. Jesus made this very clear. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless that old nature of sin and old nature filled with self is completely gutted and replaced with Christ, you're still lost in your sin. But there's a warning for us here, for those of us who go to church, for those of us who are religious, those of us who serve. And one danger is pride. Somehow we can think, well, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. There's plenty of bad people, people who are worse than me. And we can look good on the outside, but be lukewarm and complacent on the inside. We can function like we can do life without Jesus. I think one of the best indicators of this is, is our prayer life. And I'm preaching this to myself, even as I preach this to all of us. How often do we pray? How much do we pray? How desperate are we in our prayers? How often are we on our knees begging God for His mercy and help and His grace? How desperate are we for God? 
We might reject self-help philosophy, but in practice, we might not be all that different from those who are simply self-reliant, self-sufficient, who seem to get on just fine without Jesus and without God. But you can't follow Jesus without taking on a new nature, a new master, a new direction, and a new family. But this isn't just something we do once for those of us who are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. This needs to be an everyday reality. And the danger for us is that we can reduce faith simply to looking good on the outside. We show up to church. We show up to community group. We do the religious duties. But do we simply look good on the outside but are just like that guest house, poorly built on the inside? Let's continue to verse 45. Verse 45. Then it, the unclean spirit, goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And the irony is that at the very moment that this person, that this house, seems like it's gotten its act together, seems like things are fixed, the bad stuff's removed, the situation takes a dramatic turn for the worse. This one demon has gathered seven other of its demon friends, more evil than itself, and then eight demons have now taken possession of this house, this person, and the last state is worse than the first. And this is true in a historical sense for the nation of Israel. The people of Israel, they rebuilt the temple. They got rid of idolatry. But they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. They weren't filled with Christ. You see, they should have removed that idolatry. They should have, they should have done that. But then they should have filled themselves with Christ. But they refused. And this is a little preview of what happens in Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus comes into the temple. He cleanses the temple. He removes wickedness and greed. But the nation, they don't welcome Jesus as the rightful owner of the temple. They don't hand over the keys of the temple to Jesus. They don't acknowledge Jesus as the rightful master. And as Jesus predicted, the temple would be destroyed as God's act of judgment. There would not be left one stone on top of another that would be left. All would be thrown down and the last state would be worse than the first. We, see, we also see Jesus specifically condemn the Pharisees. He says that they're whitewashed tombs that look good on the outside, but inside are full of a dead person's bones. See, these Pharisees, they outwardly appear good. They appear so good that they don't need Jesus. Their good deeds have blinded them to their sin. And they think they're good enough to get to heaven simply by keeping God's laws on their own. They're so blinded by their pride that they don't see that their righteous deeds are filthy rags before a holy and perfect God. And their pride, their spiritual pride and their good deeds, they're nothing more than a trap that is sending them straight to hell. And the last state is worse than the first. But these Pharisees, the nation of Israel that has chosen to reject Jesus, those aren't the only people that can be said the last state is worse than the first. Sadly, there's many people within the church who profess faith in Christ. 
there's some kind of outward change, some kind of spiritual experience that occurs, and the building looks good on the outside, but the original nature, the master of sin, still dwells on the inside, and there's no inward transformation by the power of God. Remember, if the house isn't filled by the Holy Spirit, then it has to be filled by someone or something else. And it's only a matter of time before the original nature, the original master and the original direction rears its ugly head. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21 put it this way. <clears throat> For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, and that's sin and rebellion, entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. <clears throat> for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And here, Second Peter gives this sobering warning that there are some in the church who have some kind of spiritual experience, some kind of awakening, some kind of experience of God that falls short of true conversion. It doesn't last. And just as a dog returns to its vomit and the sow returns to the mire, the sinner can't help but to return to sin. And the last state is worse than the first. And when sin and Satan return... They become entrenched even more, and the heart becomes even more hardened against God. Maybe you met someone like that, someone who's said, you know what, I gave religion a try, but it never worked. And I fear that there might even be some here who have had some kind of spiritual experience with God that falls short of saving faith. You might look good on the outside. You might look genuine to others around you, but you might be deceived. Our nature determines our behavior. And without that new nature, without that inner transformation where our, our inward sin, our inward self is completely gutted and removed, we can't have a new master. We can't have a new direction. We've got to be changed from the inside. And the unregenerate, those who haven't been changed from the inside, they can't help but return to sin and self. They can't help but return, turn away from Christ. And that's the difference. That's the difference, my friends, between true conversion that leads to eternal life and false conversion that still leaves you in a state of sin. That's why God has to work the miracle, the supernatural work of regeneration. And without that radical change, the old master of sin and self is still rooted deep within each one of us. So it's only those who are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit that have a new nature, a new master, and a new direction. It's only those who are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, fills our lives. The old is gone, the new has come. And only those who are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit leave everything behind and follow Jesus. And that changes everything. And as a pastor, as your pastor, I have to answer to God, and I'm responsible to warn you. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 puts the warning like this. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, 
leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And the writer of Hebrews is speaking to the church, to the church which is likely a mixed audience between, you know, a mixed audience of both believers and unbelievers. And he is concerned that some within the church are in danger of an evil and unbelieving heart that will lead them to fall away from the living God. That's why he tells them, today, today each of us must embrace Christ by faith or be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those are the only two options. There's some of you who are going through a prolonged season of suffering and you're tempted to give up. Some of you are undergoing a prolonged fight and struggle against sin and you're tempted to give in. Some of you are going through an unresolved conflict and bitterness is a huge temptation for you and you are tempted to give yourself over to that anger and bitterness. God brings these situations into our lives as a test and these challenges present a choice before us whether we will return to sin or we will walk with Christ by faith. But the solution for all of us, no matter whether we're going through a mountaintop experience with Christ on a spiritual high or we're going through the the valley of the shadow, whatever situation God finds you in, we need to hold on to Christ until the end. We need to run to Christ where we will find strength and comfort in suffering. We need to run to Christ who will give us power and victory over sin. We need to run to Christ because He loved us, gave Himself up for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and secured eternal life for His people. And there's no neutrality. You can't just sit on the sidelines. The house that was empty, swept, and put into order couldn't remain neutral forever. The demon returned. The eight demons returned. That means you're either for Him or against Him. You're either a disciple who is sold out for Jesus or a member of the crowd. You're either a good tree or a bad tree. You're either on the road to heaven or on the road to hell. Jesus is either everything to you or he's nothing. He's either everything or nothing. There's no in-between. That's what Jesus is explaining here. And for some of us who, among us, church family, who are battling sin, going through intense struggle, you need to You need to remember that all in for Jesus doesn't mean perfect obedience. But being a disciple means being all in, like a couple that's been married for 50 years is all in. It wasn't a perfect commitment the first time they saved their vows, but it was an all-in commitment. And as a disciple, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, You are all in. We are all in. We are married to Christ. We love Him in such a way that neither life, nor death, nor riches, nor poverty, nor sickness, nor health, nor anything in creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But there are others who prefer to sit on the fence, and they prefer to commit to Jesus later. But friends, you have to realize that that fence is on the road to hell. 
So if, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, if you're still sitting on the fence, we, we plead with you. We plead with you to get off the fence and escape the city of destruction and flee to the celestial city. To give up. To give up the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the desires of this world, and throw yourselves at the feet of Jesus, King Jesus, who came down to earth as a human being so he could live the perfect life for us, die on the cross as punishment for our sins, and then rise after three days so he would rescue us from that final day of judgment that is fast approaching. And Jesus will come again. He will come again quickly. That's why we're warned, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And Jesus promised, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So turn to him. Turn to him even today to be saved. For those of us who have repented of our sins and we're trusting in Christ alone, because Jesus is either everything or he's nothing, is he everything to you? Is he everything to you today? And by, by, by the grace of God, will he be everything to you tomorrow and for every day of your life? Because eternity, eternity is at stake. Davies and Allison, commentators, uh, put it this way, the weightiness of our present moment the kingdom of God has come. The domain of Satan has been plundered. One greater than Jonah and Solomon has appeared. And a spectacular and unrivaled sign has been given to all, Jesus' resurrection. Hence, God has, in the Son, spoken louder than ever before. Failure to hear and respond in the present means that the last things become worse than the first. The greater the opportunity missed, the greater the loss suffered. Did you catch that last sentence? The greater the opportunity missed, the greater lo the loss suffered. That means Jesus, he's spoken. He has come. He has worked. He has demonstrated his power and authority. His mission has been completed. He has died. He rose. He has ascended. He is coming again. And so the greatest opportunity lays before us those who fail to grasp that opportunity to turn to Christ, to surrender to Him by faith, that could turn into the greatest loss instead. So follow Jesus, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. Follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, when you surrender everything, turn away from all of your sin, all of your desires, all of yourself, and surrender completely to Jesus, well, God gives you a new nature, a new master, and then he also gives you a new direction and a new family. Let's check out that new direction and the new family. Let's look at verses 46 through 48. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? As we saw earlier, Jesus was showing what an evil and unbelieving generation looks like. It's like this house that's swept up and clean and empty, but the demons return. But now he's going to show the opposite, what the opposite looks like, a righteous and believing generation. Jesus is teaching, his, teaching the people, 
And his mothers and brothers, his family are outside. They've showed up and they, they want to speak to him. We don't know why his family's there. Maybe they're concerned about his safety. Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of demons. It's a serious charge. Maybe they were concerned about his health. Often the crowds would gather and they wouldn't even have time to eat. Or maybe they were concerned because he wasn't spending enough time with his family. Either way, we need to notice the contrasts. At this moment, Jesus is inside, but the family is outside. The people are inside listening to Jesus, and the family is outside wanting to speak to Jesus. And the tension is building. The tension, you can almost imagine what the crowd is doing as they hear this news. One moment, their eyes and their attention, they're fixed to Jesus. Jesus is teaching, they're listening. And then news comes of, oh, the family's outside. Brothers and mother, they want to speak to Jesus. Okay, so they're all looking to see, if, okay, where the family members are. And then their heads are probably swinging back to Jesus to see what Jesus is going to do in this moment. What would Jesus do? Would he stop his teaching and go out and speak to his family? It's likely that the crowd expected him to do that, simply out of a sign of respect for his parents and family. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't leave everything and follow his family's instructions. Instead, Jesus puts everything into slow motion and masterfully turns it into a teaching moment for his hearers. He slows things down frame by frame and then asks, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And you can almost hear the thoughts of shock and surprise. What? I mean, you're the carpenter, you're the son of your mother Mary, your brothers and sisters are in the community. But Jesus would have raised a whole host of questions. Some of you might be thinking, well, isn't the family important? Doesn't the fifth commandment say, honor your father and mother? And Jesus is going to do something more profound, more deep, and more unexpected than his disciples could have imagined. We don't know how long he paused to let that question sink in. Was there a silence between verse 48 and 49, or did Jesus answer immediately? Maybe Jesus let that question, who is my father, who is my mother and brothers, maybe he let that question hang in the air so that his audience could wrestle with the awkwardness of what seemed to be an obvious question with an obvious answer. Let's look at verse 49 and 50. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And this is a shocking answer. Jesus points to his disciples. He doesn't go out and fulfill that request Instead, he points to his disciples and says, these are my family. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, those people are my family. Some of you might be thinking, well, is Jesus dismissing the nuclear family, the family that's composed of husband and wife and children? Well, he's not doing that. Later on in chapter 15, Jesus confronts the Pharisees for elevating their tradition above the fifth commandment. So Jesus affirms the fifth commandment that you have to honor your father and mother. And this commandment is so important that elsewhere in Scripture, we find out that if you don't provide for your relatives, especially members of your own household, that's a denial of the faith that makes you worse than unbelievers. 
So Jesus affirms the fifth commandment. But what he does here, and you need to pay careful attention to this, what Jesus does is he deprioritizes the nuclear family in light of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, yes, family is important, but not ultimately important. You are to honor father and mother. That's important. But following Jesus is even more important. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 10, 37 to 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You remember when Jesus called James and John, one of his first disciples, they left their father, they left the boat, they left their nets, they left their career, and followed Jesus. But that's not the only case where the kingdom of God dramatically changes family dynamics. In the Gospel of John chapter 7, we read this, for not even his brothers believed him. Not even his brothers believed that he was the Messiah. So Jesus was closer to his disciples than he was even to his own biological brothers and sisters and his own earthly family. And that's because following Jesus, following God, changes everything. You can't follow Jesus without taking on a new nature, a new master, a new direction, and a new family. And here we also see the inclusivity and exclusivity of Christ. We see Christ both widen and narrow the path to heaven at the same time. We see the inclusivity of Christ in verse 50, for whoever, whoever. That means you don't have to be part of a religious class. You don't need influence, money, or power. You don't have to have a certain color of skin or come from a certain place or be educated or not. Jesus came to save people from every tribe, language, and nation. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. The gospel is for Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, young and old, all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And Jesus, his mother and brothers are there, but notice there weren't any sisters there. But Jesus specifically includes younger women. Catch that at the end of verse 50. My brother and sister and mother. And in a culture that was patriarchal, Jesus inserts some powerful gender-inclusive language. So this inclusivity is so important for us that it's even in our mission statement. Worshiping God and welcoming all. Just as Jesus welcomes all people to come to him, we as a church, we welcome all people. See Jesus here, he widens the road to heaven. We see the inclusivity of Christ. But we also see the exclusivity of Christ here also. Uh, You see in verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. So not everyone's automatically included in Jesus' family. Not everyone is saved. Many are called, but few are chosen. He says, the qualification is those who do the will of my Father in heaven. 
And I need to clarify here that we aren't saved by our good works. We don't earn our way into heaven by doing the will of the Father in heaven. First of all, because it's impossible for us to earn our way. There's nothing good in us. We're born in a state of sin, and we sin continually because of our sinful nature. We are saved by grace out of that sinful nature, by grace through faith in Christ. But the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ and the miracle of regeneration happens, at that point, we begin to do the will of Father, often imperfectly. We often stumble and struggle, but we, we do the will of the Father because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We can't help but do the will of the Father. And the evidence that we've been born again, that you've been regenerated, that we have that new nature and the new master, is that we take on that new direction, doing the will of the Father. And that's the difference between those who are saved and those who are lost. The lost might even call Jesus Lord. They might even call Him Lord, Lord, but they haven't been changed on the inside. Just like that guest house, or just like the parable of the house that's empty and swept, they look good on the outside, but they haven't been transformed on the inside. They don't do the will, will of the Father because they can't. They're still, in a state of, <clears throat> they're still in a state of sin. They're still dead in their sin and trespasses. Jesus warns us this way in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there are those who profess to know Jesus as Lord, but they don't do the will of the Father in heaven. They don't have a new nature, a new master, or a new direction. And there are people who call him Lord, but hold on to secret sins, pet sins, sins they can't bear to get rid of. Maybe it's greed. Maybe you outwardly appear religious, but nothing would make you happier than to have more money or more influence or more recognition. Maybe it's lust, where you like to keep around the option to indulge in porn, and you can't bear to cut it out like a deadly cancer. Maybe it's the world where life and career and family are just consuming so much of your life and God has to take a back seat. If any of you continue down that path, you're in danger of hearing Jesus say to you on that final day, away from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. There's no neutrality. Jesus is either everything or nothing. We're either all in or we're not. The false convert wants Christ, but also wants to hold on to sin. The false convert hears the commands of Christ, but chooses which ones to obey. And that's a mistake that leads to eternal destruction. Puritan pastor Joseph Aileen gives us this warning. This is a quote I've shared before. The unsound convert takes Christ by halves. He is all for the salvation of Christ, but he is not for sanctification. He is all for the privileges, but, not, but does not take hold of the person. They divide what God has joined, the king and the priest. Every man's vote is for salvation from suffering, but they do not desire to be saved from sinning. They would have their lives saved, but still would have their lusts. Oh, be infinitely careful here. 
Your soul depends upon it. The sound convert takes a whole Christ without exceptions, without limitations, without reserve. The true convert, those who are truly born again, who are truly saved, will truly enter the kingdom of heaven. Take those are the ones who take a whole Christ, not just a priest who died for your sins, but a king who rules your life, Savior and Lord. Not just the privileges, but the person. We need to be infinitely careful here because our eternal soul depends upon this. If you like the easy parts of the Christian faith, but not the hard parts, if you like some of the commands that Jesus gives but reject the other ones, if you're religious on Sunday but you're immoral and you live for self on Monday, then you need to repent. Jesus, the Savior is called Jesus because he came to save us from our sins, not just the punishment of sin but the power of sin. And if Jesus isn't saving you from the power of sin, he's not your Savior. That means all of us here, we need to examine ourselves, examine our hearts, and repent of every sin and get rid of it like a deadly cancer and never be content until the radiation of God's light and power have wiped out every last cancerous cell of sin. You can't follow Jesus without taking on a new nature, a new master, a new direction, and a new family. And that new family is a gift that the Lord Jesus gives to us. You might be sitting here and you might have lost family. You might be single. You might not have much of an earthly family. But if you belong to Jesus, you have brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the faith. You have a forever family. The nuclear family is temporary, but God's family is forever because we have a, a better family, a better home, a better country. And compared to unbelieving family members who aren't disciples, your brothers and sisters in the Lord are closer than they could ever be. You might have spent your whole life with unbelieving family members. You might share the same address. You might share the same cell phone family plan. But no matter how close you are to those family members, the church family is always going to be closer. I've heard it said, blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. And church, how do we grow into that more and more? How do we grow into that more and more? Families, do you open your homes not just to other families, but to singles and retirees and empty nesters? The singles among us, do you open your time and lives not just to other singles, but those who are younger than you, those who are older, those who are different? And for every single one of us here, no matter our ethnicity, our race, our age, our education, are we taking time to build the unity of the church? Because Jesus prayed that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. So church, let us live that out more and more. The guest house. The guest house looked good on the outside but was poorly built on the inside. That house that was empty and swept was simply waiting to be repossessed by seven demons. Church, we need to be filled with Christ. We need to be filled with Christ moment by moment, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, because He's central to who we are. And this isn't just an impossible theory. This is a reality because He's given us the Holy Spirit. 
So let, church, let us pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pursue the filling and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that we would, as your pastors, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us, church, pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and then live out, as a result, our new nature, our new master, our new direction, and our new family. Let's pray.